Released in 1985, Dario Argento's ninth film, Phenomena, could be considered by the more initiated as being the point in his filmography that distinctly demarcates between his classic, consistently ingenious work and what would become an increasingly spottier resume. I've discovered that for most, you either love it or you loathe it. I sit within the former camp. I immediately fell in love with this grisly fairy tale after the moment I saw it. I suspended all critical analysis of it that would normally rend this movie apart and leave it a shambles to most. For me, its attempt to weave together a multitude of strange story elements retains not only Argento's trademarks, but also capitalizes on his tendency to lean into dreamlike disjointed narratives that when wielded in capable hands such as his redeems it from being a hodgepodge that less disciplined directors would ultimately relegate it to. And like all of Argento's classic films, whether or not you like the story, it is still beautifully shot, has haunting soundtrack elements, is rife with symbolism, and has an unnerving whodunit aspect. And we break all these elements down, as well as many others, on tonight's episode of Midnight Flicks. Now, about that time, first girl to disappear. That was September 9th. 14-year-old Danish tourist named Vera Brandt. The body was never found. Just like the other girls. After finding this, what's the use of hiding from the fires? There's a killer. A vicious killer. I'm sure you're going to like our school. To begin with, we all speak English. By the way, I'm Sophie. I'm French. Jennifer. You know, I'm really glad you're here. I've always had to sleep alone. It can be very scary. You know, there's a murderer around here. It's girls our age and kills them. And then he hides the bodies. What you did last night is highly irregular. No student ever left the school at night before. How many times do I have to tell you that I didn't walk out on purpose? I walk in my sleep. Have you any idea where you've been? No. What if the killer saw me? Have you any idea why they behave like that? It's perfectly normal for insects to be slightly telepathic. Yeah, it's normal for insects. But am I normal? I love all of you. Welcome to Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I am your host, Adam Walker, and joining me on this cinematic expedition is Patrick Mitchell. How's it going, Patrick? I'm very well. Still doing all all right, despite 
the quarantine. Loving the, loving the time of Corona. Just living large in this time of Corona. My God, we're just hurtling towards uh, our deaths sooner than I thought. This I didn't expect it in 2020, but uh, here we are. Yeah, everybody thought it was in 2012. Maybe that's they got the numbers wrong. Yeah, the 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 Incans, uh, My, the Mayans, the Mayans, the yes, the Mayan calendar, uh, the Mayans uh, were off by a little bit, but um, <laughs> given given that they were you know within a decade of it, uh, that's pretty good for them. Pretty good odds. I would chalk that up not so much to the Mayans as to our own our own misinterpretation of the ancient data that we have looked at. That if if we're gonna go down that path but i mean i just were stupid and they were right on top of it precisely <laughs> precisely um so tonight is uh this episode is a real special one this is a movie that i hold very near and dear to my heart um we're talking about dario argento's phenomena and <clears throat> it is in terms of his his um, filmography, a controversial film. There are other films I would say in his, his filmography that would be deemed more controversial um, because they're just not considered the quality of film that he is known for delivering. And that would be his later output. This one is particularly controversial because it's very polarizing where you have some, I feel some diehards that will cape up for it no matter what. And then you have people on the other end of the spectrum that feel like this was where, this is where Argento jumped the shark. And it, this is the, this is the dividing line. This is the Mason Dixon where after this, he just, he, he didn't come back. This is where he, he fucked up for fans and there was no going back. So I would be in the former of these two categories where the, the, the night that I saw this, I remember when I saw it and I saw it pretty late in terms of viewing other Argento movies um, in terms of, you know, my, my history of watching horror films or underground movies and, and weird films. I saw it pretty late in the game. And it immediately stuck with me. It was very poignant. It had a very special, special feeling to me. And that's why I, I really wanted to kick things off talking about Argento with this movie. So that being said, you wanted to kind of forego maybe the, the, um, the formality that we've been going through we're talking about any recent movies, like with the Ichi episode, we talked specifically about uh, Mieke stuff. So you want to do that tonight with that with this as well? Maybe kind of talk more about like where Argento has has sat with us in terms of um, our appreciation for what he's done and and our appreciation for horror films in general. Yeah, I. I... I, unlike you, um, do believe that this is the start of his decline. Um, 
not that this movie is um bad uh but it does mark a point in his career where he doesn't really reach uh the the point um the excess point that he had uh previously um there's not that many movies that come out after phenomena that are even worth exploring um opera being probably uh the best post phenomena movie that he does um and then there's a series of bad movies um until he wraps up the um the the three mothers trilogy in 2007 with mother of tears which isn't great um but i love mother of tears because it's wrapping up a trilogy that he started like some 30 odd years previously um but yeah i I think this is a this is a a turning point in his career i know that it's the last it marks basically the last widespread American release of, of his movies. Um, and it was released, uh, as creepers and was heavily edited, like over 20 minutes was cut out of it. And, um, given that that was his release here in the States, I think he went out kind of on a sour note in terms of theatrical releases, um, stateside. Right. So yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you where again this is a demarcation line and there is a before and after that's that's i'm not in disagreement at all about that like you said opera is in many ways the last really redeemable movie post phenomena um and then there is a line of movies that are fairly subpar um for the more initiated so what I'm saying though is this movie for a lot of people is still not good. <laughs> and yeah, and I, I'm not I'm not a, <laughs> I'm right on the line with it. It right. is not his best efforts. I wouldn't even put it in a, a top uh, 5 probably, but I, I, you can see the wheels start to come off the cart in this movie. Um, there's some stuff I really love. Yeah. Uh, but the, the sheen is wearing off a little bit. Um, and he had rattled off an incredible amount of movies up to this point. His 70s, basically the 1970s was his um, magnus opus. Like that's his magnum opus. Like that's his, uh, that's where he shined brightest. And then these early eighties movies started a path of he, he never, he never really recovered. But, and I, I, I think this movie does have some of that where it's starting to come off, but um, I mean, we can just, we can dive right into it if you'd like. Yeah. Before we do that, cause we will talk about that for sure. And um, I will say that when we do discuss this, that, when I viewed this this time with more of a critical eye that it did dim the luster somewhat, I guess for me, but, but not enough for me to knock this out of, this is definitely in my, definitely in my top three. 
Argento's. So, and even with watching it this time and kind of picking it apart a little bit more, but that's just because it just hit me so hard the first time that it's going to be hard to knock it down enough pegs (laughs) to take it out of the top three for me, I would say. But before we get to that, because we kind of talked about this with the previous episode with, like I said, with Nike, um, I think you brought up what what was the 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 very first Argento movie you ever you ever saw, and if you had any impressions at that moment about that movie and the director himself and 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 whatnot, and and if it if it was in any way in a uh, an epiphany for you, uh, but yeah, so I guess I I would like to ask you that if 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 you remember in particular. Yeah, mine's pretty standard and boring. I mean, I saw Suspiria. <laughs> right. I'm pretty sure most people start there or they start with a, they start with something else and maybe not knowing it's him. But I think most people start with Suspiria and know that it's him. Um, I mean, it's unequivocally his best movie and it's, uh, you know, a top 10 all-time horror movie ever uh and i think the it's my it's the first time i ever saw a a giallo kind of movie um as well so it was an introduction into a whole uh underground of movies that i i was never privy to but i think my initial reaction obviously the 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 censorship in the States doesn't allow blood to kind of pop on the screen the way it does in his movies. It's just like buckets of the brightest colors being like just thrown all over the place. It's, it's like a, you're getting eye fucked in the best way. It's just so vibrant and, and gory in a, in a, like a, it's gory. It's a gory ballet it's like this beautiful kind of dance that he's kind of going through. It's, it's not gritty or, or, uh, dirty or anything like that. Um, it's, it's very, it's like, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, uh, uh, type of horror movie that he weaves for, um, most of his career. Yeah. So I'm right there with you. I also, you know, first experience Argento via Suspiria. I distinctly remember seeing the movie and it was in the late nineties or early two thousands. And by that time, you know, I was a pretty dyed in the wool film horror movie, uh, person. But I think like at that point, I wasn't quite as much of like a student of the craft as I've you know, tried to become in, in subsequent years. I was more just like a music kind of dork, <laughs> a music and, and visual art dork, but not so much like I loved movies, but like I hadn't dove into them, you know, with as much enthusiasm as I have since. And I remember watching the movie with a group of friends. Uh, I got basically introduced to the movie by a friend of mine who is probably the most well-versed person I know one of the most well-versed people I know in horror, um, my friend Patrick. And um, I got a a copy of the VHS from him 
and uh, we watched it at their at their house at the time. And yeah, so seeing that movie, that was the first time I feel like it really dawned on me that you know you could use color in that very specific way that he has as you know uh, a narrative tool and a stylistic tool i never really i don't think i'd really thought about color in movies quite the same way until i saw argento and as people have probably heard when if they've listened to this podcast at this point you know i emphasize that a lot and i think that really started with me seeing argento's movies about how intently he uses color in his own way you know and you can when you you know when you see him the color schemes that he uses you know that it's almost like his you know it is his trademark this is an argento movie he uses very very bright fluorescent almost kind of unnatural colors in a very beautiful way and <clears throat> that was the first time i recognized that being used by any sort of director and and it stuck with me ever since of course so um yeah and so from there on like i you know i was able to explore his catalog a little further and you know and and, uh ever since then you know he's been a a a huge influence on me in terms of not just like in terms of like um building a narrative and storytelling but also transferring that over into like how i approach my own visual art and things like that so yeah so um like i said i i got uh i got hip to this movie a little bit later though i think it was because i kind of maybe avoided it because i knew it had kind of a reputation so uh for not being one of his best but i eventually did watch it and like i said it's 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 always stuck with me very much so. And I think it's because I feel like there's a certain sorrowfulness and, and sadness to the story that kind of stuck with me at the right time in the right place. And so that's why I, I kind of hold this movie in a different regards, maybe with, uh, with respect to his, his other uh, films and some people. So um, I guess without further ado, then maybe we can, go on and just start talking about the movie let's do it okay so phenomena came out in 1985 and um um it uh stars jennifer connelly and this is one of jennifer connelly's earliest roles i think it might have been like her first or second movie actually so um and uh brief synopsis of the movie a young girl with an amazing ability to communicate with insects is transferred to an exclusive Swiss boarding school where her unusual capability might help solve a string of murders. And so it's kind of a weird premise. And another theme that I think I've found that I've come to uh, time and time again with talking about some of these movies and this started with us talking about Halloween three is I found that the movies that I'm really drawn towards uh, when it comes to these weird kind of redheaded stepchild misfit toy type of movies is when you break down the story, it is an assemblage of a lot of disparate 
elements um, that the director or the writer has tried to somehow sew together. And the problems that arise within the, the script with the movie comes from the fact that there are these widely disparate elements that are all trying to be kind of Frankenstein together. <laughs> and I feel like with phenomena, this is another example, like Halloween three, same thing where, you know, it's these disparate elements that probably don't really work well together, but they're really jamming them together to see how we can create a story out of it. So, <laughs> yeah, it definitely suffers from a, uh, uh, almost like a personality disorder of sorts. Right. It does have a schizophrenic aspect to it. And when we go into talking more about the movie here, I think that has a lot to do with, again, the timeline that it came out and where Argento was probably professionally and where he was at in his career, where he was probably faced with having to kind of adapt and move forward. Um, in terms of, you know, being relevant to, um, the, the, the horror movie, uh, trends of the time. So basically he was trying to maintain some of his own distinct identity as a director and have some of his, you know, his, you know, tropes be utilized in this movie, but also be able to utilize some things from other kinds of, uh, other directors and other movies that were coming out of the time. Um, <clears throat> now, eventually we will talk about this movie. Um, but another example of this that I would cite is the boxers omen where it was coming out during a time and from a region where that director was trying to stay relevant, but also display their own distinct sort of voice within a genre piece. And again, I feel like Phenomena is one of those type of movies. We're going to move into the good, the bad, and the questionable here. I'm um, talking about phenomena. So what I will say with this movie is upon this, uh, this, this particular rewatch of it for this podcast, it definitely rose probably in my mind, the most questions I've had in relating, <laughs> relating to any, film's plot uh of any film that we've talked about up to this point this this one is where we really for me will dive into the questions more so than the other things a lot of questions i i had some but yes <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to that let's talk about all the good things about this movie what are all the things that we liked about this movie well, um, as I'm sure you'll agree, you know, um, we put together our list and, uh, you know, I write stuff down that sometimes I 
I don't know if you'll agree with or not, but I, I have a feeling we're both on the page that Donald Pleasance is just delightful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I love, I love Donnie P and everything. And I'll say this and yes, of course I had that down as well. Every movie that I see him in, at least from a particular era now, well, I would say even any movie, because even like the movies I've seen him in pre like American horror, like his debut in like American horror, obviously through the Halloween series, there is always a gravitas to every role that he plays. I've never, ever seen Donald Pleasance in a role that is, is light or comedic for that matter. No, no, no. He's given there, some meaty roles and uh in this he gets a, the fun of getting a, a wheel around in a, a roll around on a wheelchair and stuff. So yeah, he's got a lot going on here. Rolling around in a wheelchair and playing with bugs. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Donald, he's Go ahead. I was going to say I you know, in this in this movie he plays an entomologist who eventually yes. who eventually befriends uh um, Jennifer Connelly's character, Jennifer Corvino, in this movie. Yeah, she, her name is still Jennifer. Her name is still um, Jennifer. No, yeah, I thought Donald Pleasance. Um, <laughs> obviously, he's he's in the good, um, along with uh, Inga the Chimp. I thought that was a, I I think is one of the most incredible animal performances in a movie. It really, it's really good. It, it really is. Um, yeah, I, I, the the chimp does a lot and has a uh, has like a carved out role. He's it's not just like a token chimp. <laughs> no, absolutely. And this will foreshadow a bit of us talking about the bad and the questionable. But I will say of all the acting in this movie, that yes, the stars of the show were Pleasance and the chimp in terms of delivering. Uh, notable performances and the chimp. Yeah. The chimp was great through the whole thing. You know, I will say there are some questions and uh, in terms of ethics about utilizing a chimp in a movie. Um, and we'll get into that later too, as to, as to, you know, what it, it implies by having basically a wild animal um, <laughs> as one of your stars. But if we want to um, suspend any of our, uh, opinions in that regard. Yeah. The chimp did a great job. And, um, and yeah, uh, after watching it this time again, I was just delighted to see what she did throughout the movie. So for sure, those are two things that I would agree on there. Um, to top off the movie right away. One thing that I really love about this is the, um, the scenery of the movie and, where the movie takes place, obviously, you know, around the Swiss Alps and that opening sequence right there from the beginning where you see the student getting um, <clears throat> left behind from the tour bus and you see uh, the mountains behind her and everything like that. Um, that whole thing, like, kind of follows through the whole movie and also kind of gives this feeling throughout the whole movie of... I, I couldn't help, but like, while I watched it felt like it, it, it had like almost like a, a chilly uh, autumnal kind of atmosphere that kind of pervaded the whole movie that really makes you feel like you're there in the moment in that particular region. It's definitely one of his more uh, picturesque 
uh, sets <laughs> for sure. And you can tell it's shot on location and all that. I like a good whodunit. Um, and Giallo, the main component of what makes up a Giallo is a, is a good whodunit. Um, it's, that's basically what uh, a Giallo is. It's a, it's a detective story of, of sorts. Um, and I always, I, I always love a, a good whodunit and try to figure out as a viewer um, uh, who is committing these murders. Um, and I think this one in particular has one of the best reveals of a perpetrator that I can remember. It, it's still uh, knowing that it's knowing that the ending is coming and knowing who the killer is. It's still shocking when it happens Every time I rewatch this movie, I know exactly what's going to happen. And then when the reveal happens, I guess this movie's, I mean, old enough. We could, <laughs> we could talk about it and not worry about spoilers, but the reveal of Bruckner's deformed son is still just so good. It's so good. Right. And yeah. And, and if you're in any way, shape or form familiar with, what is uh, Argento's sort of recipe is you know who's going to be the killer because consistently in every single Argento movie, he has the murderer being a woman, being basically not only a woman, but a, a matriarchal figure in, in the plot. So, yeah, so you kind of if you were if you were along for the ride before, you knew that like oh well, this is how it was going to pan out. But then yeah, he adds on top of it not only is the murderer, um, Frau Bruckner, but that she has this like morbidly deformed child. Um, and what I wanted to say about that is that's where I feel like this is where Argento was trying to kind of keep pace with some of like the slashers of the time, because you have the giallo element, but then you have what I would say is him basically trying to take pieces from movies like Friday the 13th, where you have, um, you know, it mirrors basically the same present uh, premise as Friday the 13th. How the original is uh, Pamela Voorhees. Right. And not Jason, obviously. Right. And and the mother is acting this way in, in you know, in vengeance to, you know, her, you know, something happening to her son. And same thing here. But when we get into the questionable, I want to talk about that more because I feel like there isn't really a clear motivation to her murders other than like, she just is like a psychopath, but anyways, yeah. So Agreed. there, there is that. Um, and that's, again, that's something, um, that I feel like, you know, of these disparate elements, he was trying to take things and tie into his more formula, formulaic kind of giallo type of style. Um, one thing that I really, uh, speaking of, uh, expanding upon the story and, and like how kind of crazy it gets is, this whole all other aspect of um, Jennifer being uh, psychic and having a psychic connection to the insects, that whole premise to me, I really, really like that was like a, of, of all the things in the movie for some reason really stuck out to me. And I felt this weird connection to 
Um, so I don't know how you feel about that and how that kind of ties into the, the rest of the story. Yeah, probably because it's uh, the only movie that I could think of that really has that element to it. And to piggyback off of that, I, I put that the the sarcophagus fly detective sequence is one of my favorites of the whole movie where she takes the fly on the bus and is is, uh, you know, looking for the aroma of, of death and the fly is leading her to the crime scene. I love that scene that the woman on the bus is yelling at her to close the window and she's like, shut the fuck up, you old bag. Like I I there's something delightful about uh, Pleasant Donald Pleasant's, uh, you know, kind of telling her about what the sarcophagus fly is is all about and then her taking it on this weird journey it shouldn't work like it's like why she has like this fly in a box like it seems so stupid and on paper i feel like that does not work but right. then in, in execution it is, is so good and it stands out as as my favorite scene i think actually in the whole movie yeah so to talk more about this just in general all i feel like all the scenes that involves her controlling or having some sort of uh, connection with the insects and using them to her advantage are, are some of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, the scene where she's being guided by the firefly through the forest and ends up finding the killer's glove. I love that whole aspect of it. Uh, there's obviously the, the scene where she's being um, pestered and humiliated by her classmates to the point where she breaks down and summons this legion of flies to descend upon the schoolhouse, you know, where it's just like, it's kind of like that was her just, you know, it's simultaneously her trying to basically establish like, no, I'm the one that's in control here. I'm the one that has the power here. But she uses it in this way where she also tries to state that she is looking out for her classmates. So it's like this weird kind of moment where it's like she almost appears as like a religious figure, I I, I sense in some ways. It's like this beatific moment where she's using, she's harnessing her powers over nature to kind of cast dominion over you know these other people her her uh um how should i say it her um colleagues <laughs> well yeah her um i can't think of it, but yes peers her, her peers <laughs> so yeah and then of course there's the very end scene where she once again utilizes uh the wrath of the flies to um descend upon uh, Frau Bruckner's son to dispatch him from, uh, you know, killing her in the, in the boat. But yeah, so like all those scenes where she utilizes the insects are some, some of my favorite parts of the movie. The other scene that I love when Jennifer falls in the vat of like the human viscera, it's like, (laughs) genuinely gut turning she's like coming up with like mouthfuls of human waste in her fucking mouth and then just like taking deep gargly breaths of just 
fucking death. Like, right. That, that, and that, she can't get out of it. That is that is a good Argento moment. Argento loves to watch you like squirm through shit as well. Absolutely. Um, that is a that's like a top notch, one of the best squirmy Argento um things that I that the scenes that I can think of. Yeah, it's 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 pretty tough to watch. It definitely like gives you a queasy feeling because you're just saying the whole time like oh like god like she could like die from gargling these like <laughs> gulps gulpfuls of death gruel. It never <laughs> ends and the color he puts on uh it, the color that the the water is like this brown like tepid kind of quality like it's it's so good like it's just it's not just like uh you know some some black water with uh with skeleton bones like hanging out it's like pulpy and like thick and mm-hmm. she's just like chugging deep <laughs> gargly mouthfuls of it. it it is disgusting i fucking love it yeah yeah so that that is a good segue into just talking about the the death and murder scenes in general again, which that is one of Argento's, you know, calling cards is developing like these really like um, visceral death scenes, very violent visceral death scenes. And um, <clears throat> again, there's a few tropes here that he utilizes um, that, still holds up even in this movie for me specifically you know the use of the victim's heads crashing through glass um that happens in the very beginning when um the student vera the first victim when she gets stabbed in in that room and her head crashes through the glass and then is eventually decapitated and you see that scene where the decapitated head just falls through the waterfall <laughs> into the water. That whole sequence right there um, always stood out to me as one of Argento's better death scenes. And then of course the, one of the later victims, um, the one is, I believe it, it's not Sophie. I think it's a different one where she is pursued through that vacant building. And then you see the introduction of the killer's, signature weapon which is like this weird sort of bayonet thing that's like it's like it's a modular bayonet sort of thing that they're able to like put together and then attack a victim from a distance yeah, it's like a bayonet on like an extension pole I don't, <laughs> I don't didn't really get um yeah I, di- I didn't understand what specifically what it was but yeah right but just like that the fact that this killer had this thing fashioned for themselves. <laughs> you know, think about that's true. They the, thought about that for a while. Right. The thing about the interaction with, with wh- whoever they had fabricate this, this sort of implement of death, like, Hey, so I have this thing that I need to make me. Uh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like, that makes me think of there's that scene in, in seven where they find the one guy. He's like, um, He's basically a sex toy or like he's like a, he, he, you know, he's like some sort of like leather uh, sex toy manufacturer that uh, was commissioned to make the uh, the knife dildo thing. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that guy's gotta be like, <laughs> I'm making this and I, I know it, it's ill intense here. Like <laughs> we also had soundtrack. I mean, you get, you get Iron Maiden, you get Motorhead. I mean, I'm not sure. He, I can think of another one of his movies where he just had like, uh, you know, heavy metal bands or just like, I, it's, it was jarring, but awesome at the same time. I mean, obviously Goblin is, is on there. Well, Goblin actually isn't in the movie very much. Um, Claudio Simonetti has a large hand in the soundtrack. Claudio Simonetti was a member of Goblin. Goblin themselves, as far as I know, they only have, they're only portrayed really briefly during the part where one of the students or something's going on where like uh, uh, Dawn of the Dead is on the television. And so Goblin soundtrack is featured in that little snippet right there. So that to give them credit, but the soundtrack itself, which yes, wanted to talk about that soundtrack's amazing. Um, and that's mostly done by Claudio Simonetti and Simon Boswell and Bill Wyman from the Rolling Stones. So it's like these people that they all kind of cobbled together their own um, incidental music to uh, comprise the soundtrack. As far as the Iron Maiden and the Motorhead goes, so I will say initially I really, really did appreciate that aspect of it. And that's again, Argento attempting to kind of keep up with the times, especially with like, if you think about other uh, Italian horror cinema happening around that time, like demons where using hard rock and heavy metal was pretty integral to the pace of the soundtrack. And it fits. I will say this much on subsequent viewings. After thinking about this more with this movie, I didn't like it as much. Um, we can get into that later, but it's not that I have a problem with heavy metal being in this soundtrack. It's more just where it was placed. Um, so that being said though, I do really, really like the soundtrack a lot. Um, there's particular, um, recurrent themes that stand out to me like Jennifer's theme, um, which I'll always love, uh, by itself. And that's basically like, uh, that's the music that's playing, while Jennifer is going through the forest with the, um, with the firefly trying to find, so you know what I'm talking about. And I made the connection, I think really this time watching it, like the reason why I love that is because that particular music reminds me so much of Castlevania. Oh yeah. (laughs) It it reminded me of in uh, Suspiria when she's running through the woods um, I think after fleeing the, or after escaping the hotel or, you know, running away from the hotel that there's that sequence where she's like running through the woods. Um, it was similar to that. Right. And, and again, that's another Argento thing to do is to have a victim being, you know, chased and pursued through the woods somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's and another one of his themes for with, sure. With like some sort of inclement weather being enacted, up, you know, in the environment, you know, like so, like you know, throughout the movie, torrential downpours and right, torrential downpour, obviously during Suspiria and this one, it just seems like through this movie, there's this constant presence of 
heavy, gusty wind. There was never actually a storm, but it was always like this, you know, set up for a storm <laughs> that you notice throughout the whole movie. And it, and that goes back to talking about, you know, what I was saying with like giving this like kind of like chilly sort of um, autumnal atmosphere to the whole movie. Mo- excuse me, movie. So, um, yeah. So like, I do love the soundtrack. I just had, I took issue with like, again, with where some of the things were placed in this particular, uh, with this particular viewing. Yeah. I'm, we can move into bad cause I had the same, I mean, I know exactly what you're saying with, with the, with the soundtrack. Like, while I enjoyed the soundtrack, like I enjoy those songs, uh, specifically uh flash of the blade is just one of the strangest um uses of a song that i've ever seen it, it it's it's just very strange it, it feels like somebody on youtube like found that scene and then like threw flash of the blade on top of it because they thought it'd be tight like it doesn't feel like a professional uh filmmaker like thought that out and and made it come to fruition it's so weird right it's just the placement it's not fitting but it's like played over her escape um and she's like trying to yeah it's so weird she like jimmy's that window open and like crawls down and it's so weird well and it's utilized a couple times throughout the movie and both times it's kind (laughs) of like i feel like they put it there to give this sort of yeah, uh, a sort of urgency to the to the scene, but it's yeah, it it's 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 not working. It's kind of out of place. So I guess yeah, you know, we, we'll just segue straight into the bad with that. Talking about the sound, you know, some of these soundtrack choices. Obviously, yeah, like the the heavy metal in the movie just isn't put in the right places, or really needs to be put in there at all. Again, it it's like an afterthought. Like I was saying, Argento is just trying to figure out ways to make this more palatable to a different audience. And at that time, you know, slasher movies and heavy metal were at its peak. And the two were kind of being more and more conjoined. So I feel like he's just like, oh, well, let's just add this to it and see how it goes. You know? Yeah, it, it's bad. Bad placement. I'm like, yeah, I like those songs, but it doesn't mean that they have to be in the movie. Right. Or at least just not there. There's other places they could have been put, but they just weren't put in the right places. Um, So big bad, I would say for this movie is overall, this is what really I feel is a hindrance to the quality of this movie. And that's the acting. And, and I don't know how much of this again is because if you watch any of these Italian movies from that era, you know, you can attribute a lot of, to, a lot of the acting issues with maybe just a loss in translation um, or just something of that nature. But there is definitely a, across the board with a, a couple exceptions we already talked about, just very, very poor acting throughout this movie that really um, kind of, you know, hinders the overall, you know, impact of, of what they were trying to say with it. 
I mean, Jennifer Connelly specifically is objectively terrible. One of one of the worst performances I think I've ever seen in a fucking movie. And I mean, she's being outacted by a chimp like routinely. It, it's crazy. It, it is crazy. Like I, I thought out loud several times how much better the the chimp is. She is so bad and she does not get the benefit of like a lost in translation kind of dubbing effect that happens right. in a lot of this, these Giallo movies. Like she's an American actress. Uh, her lines aren't like dubbed over from like a weird different language, like Italian or whatever. Um, and, and this is where the wheels are starting to come off for Argento. That kitschiness, um, which was like a trademark for all of his earlier movies, which you just, it's just, you, you put, you, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't say you put up with it. It is part of what you sign up for in right. getting into these movies. And it, it doesn't typically take you out of the experience. It's just, it is what it is. And if that's something that you just can't get past, then these movies probably aren't for you. But this sure. is the first time that it it is working against him, I feel like. It, it, it really is. Because I don't mind her classmates. Her classmates have a very Suspiria... Uh, uh, ballet classmate vibe to them where they're just it's just weird and funny and quirky and it works but jennifer Connolly does not work she's objectively really bad yeah and it's unfortunate because i do see parts of her performance in the movie that that are redemptive and kind of give this overall sadness and trauma traumatized kind of quality to the character because i feel like in a lot of ways this movie is supposed to be talking about jennifer jennifer is the main character in this movie that we're following through and we're you know this is her journey and one of like the the underlying themes of this is that she is a teenager dealing with a lot of trauma. You know, she's, you know, she's removed from her family. She has this strange gift that makes her, you know, even more alienated from her peers. And on top of that, she's also being pursued by this, this faceless murderer. So <laughs> This, this, you know, this young woman has a, a lot on her. She's got a lot weighing on her shoulders that she has to overcome. So there really was the potential to really carve out a very um, strong female character in this. And like I said, I feel like in the beginning, when you first meet her, there kind of are some glimpses of that. But as it goes through, yeah, she just kind of gives this kind of flat um, performance that doesn't really develop the character to the potential that it, it probably would have had. So. Totally agreed. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm just not trying to like shit all over a uh, teenage Jennifer Connelly. Like I understand she's like a young actress in her like second role ever. So I'm, you know, a little, right. give her a little bit of grace there. <laughs> totally. Totally. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you just kind of have to take it for what it is at the time. Um, so, I mean, those were like the, the big bads. I mean, otherwise, like there's just a lot of like inconsistencies throughout, like, like there's, there's inconsistencies again in trying to tie together this story 
and make it all kind of work, you know, in a sensible manner. Um, you have to suspend a lot of disbelief throughout this movie. The one thing I disagree with you is that I think all the kills in this movie are boring. And that's another reason why there's a, a turn of the turning of the tide here. None of them stand out to me as like great or memorable. When I rewatched this again for like, I don't know, I've probably seen this a handful of times. I can probably count it on one hand. Um, I couldn't remember a single I remember her falling in the remember Jennifer falling in the in the vat of human remains. Uh I remember the reveal at the end. I remember the 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 bug stuff obviously. But I didn't remember specifically how anyone died. Uh I think the most I think the most imaginative kill is when Donald Pleasance's uh wheelchair uh uh assist thing on the banister is like failing him. Um, and he's, he's coming down and, and you just see a shadowy figure at the bottom of the stairs. Um, and the, 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 and Inga is, is trapped outside. Like I, I, I thought that scene was really cool, but everyone else just gets kind of a one-off kind of penetrative kill. Um, I know there's the decapitation and all that. And I'm, I'm talking about decapitation, like it's boring, but like, <laughs> his other stuff previous to this is so imaginative. And in this, I feel like if this was a first time director, it would be fantastic. It would be great. It's just, he set himself up for these elaborate imaginative kills that this just does not meet that very, I will ad admittedly very high criteria for me. I gotcha. Um, I mean, yeah, they're they're definitely not the most imaginative kills, but I remember every single one of them. Like I remember there's multiple decapitation scenes. Like there's the one at the end where um Morris, I think that's his name, the uh lawyer of Jennifer's father comes and his head gets <laughs> decapitated You're by right. the by the sheet metal. <laughs> in, in fact, um, that's one that I did not, I, for whatever reason, uh, was lost in, in my memory. And so that, that was like a big, oh shit moment. Like I literally allowed was like, oh fuck. Like right. that one, that one did jar me. You're right. That, that one stands out. But then at the, at that point I'm at the end of the movie and then I haven't really experienced personally anything that was like, Holy shit. Like this is, this is really some really tight murder stuff, which is what he's known for. It It's not that it's not great. They're okay. And, and yeah. they're, they're okay. What about when, what about when the, the child, the, the, the mutant child gets attacked by the swarm of insects and is clawing his face apart <laughs> everything at the end of the movie is obviously great. Like everything at the end, but from the time she falls into the vat on is like my favorite shit, but I've sat through an hour of a movie at that point and not a ton has happened. Um, you get a great third act. It's not even a great third act. You get a great ending. Um, there's so much going on. I mean, yeah. it doesn't make, it doesn't make a lot of sense, Sure, uh, but it's fun. It's fun as hell. Yeah, right. No, it it, it is great. But up to that point, um, I, I didn't get a lot uh, up to that point. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like that right there that is a central criticism that I've I've read over and over is you know that you have to sit through 
what what seems to be a, a pretty tedious plot to get to this final showdown that results in so much over the top, you know, over the top shit happening all at once, be it like the, the vat with the bodies and then Frau Bruckner completely flipping out and you, you know, the guy chained up and, and then leading to that whole in scene with the boat. You're right. I don't know. Again, that whole, you know, the, 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 the main aspect of the movie leading up to that, where you're kind of following like Jennifer's journey and like her kind of, I guess being that's become the, that's the problem. It's Jennifer Connolly heavy, and she does not carry that story. <laughs> that's the that's the problem. You don't want to sit through a, a Jennifer Connolly a story that has been laid upon her shoulders for her to bear the weight of. Right, and she's not in the capacity to bear it. Right, right. And again, I'm not I'm not disagreeing. Like I said, I have my issues with her acting as well. I've I don't know if again if I will outright say that I feel like it's bad acting. I feel like it's understated acting more than it's just straight up bad acting. That's my whole thing. And I and when I was watching it this time again, I was really trying to, I guess, um I was really trying to analyze that as being, you know, again, due to her being young, but also she's trying to give this kind of so, uh, sad, somber, sort of understated. Um, presence to her character uh, more so than it just being bad acting but again I think I'm coming more from the standpoint of like I really like this movie a lot so I'm trying to find ways to redeem it other than just completely shit all over it so that's where I appreciate you coming in from the other side and being like all right, this is where it sucks (laughs) because there's an an I was going to say there's an old adage in wrestling in professional wrestling be be great in terms of your promo work and be great if you are a, a heel be bad you want them you want them booing you want right. a reaction regardless if if uh you're a baby face you want them to care and you want them to be invested and hanging on your every word but the worst thing you can be in professional wrestling is boring and to have right. no reaction and True. i think that's where she is at in this movie she's not giving us great she's not giving us objectively bad to where it's uh unintentional comedy yeah. she's giving us a straight up uh, you know, a, <laughs> we have coded on on the monitor. We, <laughs> I've right. got no activity. The heartbeat has is, is a straight line across the monitor. Like I've I've got nothing. Yeah, and it's just boring. It, it doesn't give me anything to cheer for. But uh, yeah, again, I don't want to hammer this into the ground. With, with, <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna turn this into a, a Jennifer Connelly hate fest. <laughs> no, I don't. But let's get to your questions. Okay, so yeah, so that's gonna be the big thing about all this. Um is there is a lot of questions. And again, you know, this, this, you know, is a discussion we need to have to kind of like maybe try and suss out some of the issues with some of the writing and the script a little bit. So um, I guess one question I had right from the get go is um, Vera Brandt, the, the student that gets um, left behind from the bus. She just walks into this home 
where she's trying to find help from whoever lives there. There's no knocking or anything like that. She just walks in. And of course, you know, I realized that that's what they had to do to kind of set her up for, you know, being put into danger and being a victim. Uh, Cause otherwise, but the thing is like, she doesn't knock or anything like that. She just walks straight into this house and is yelling for help. And I don't understand, you know, like again, like no one would do that. Um, no one would just walk into someone's home. They would at least attempt to like try and get their attention. So that's one thing that I, I was wondering like, why, why, why would that happen? Um, let me think. Um, oh, another question I had was, um, there's a very, very brief narration from Dario Argento at the beginning of the movie when Jennifer shows up to the boarding school, um, uh, where he's basically saying, and thus, you know, this was the beginning of Jennifer's you know, adventure or whatever. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, it's only there for I'm like. I'm not sure if I was like fucking wasted, but I have no. I, I didn't even pick up on this. Also, it, it, just side note: Are there that many multiple versions of this movie? I know that there's Creepers, which is the theatrical U.S. release that's heavily edited. It's like 82 minutes or whatever. Right. And then there's the the actual version of the movie. I I do not remember a uh, voiceover at all. Okay. Yeah, so there is a voiceover. Every version I've ever seen, and that's the uncut version, has a narration in the very beginning when she shows up at the school. It's a male voice. And it's one of those things where, you know, you would think it would be consistent throughout the movie, but it's just there at that moment. And then it never shows up again. And never shows up again. Well, that wasn't one of my questions because I didn't even notice it to begin begin with. But yeah, that would be weird. Well, that's, that's there. And again, this is an instance of like, that's really the big problem is with the writing of on this uh, uh, movie is they're just trying to do so much and they're not able to effectively weave it all together consistently throughout the movie. But that's there. Um, another question I had was, and I get that Argento is trying to establish that this character is this archetype basically for being a terrible uh, brooding kind of dictator but the headmistress of the boarding school is just immediately awful. She's just immediately shitty to, to the students. There's no like formality of being nice whatsoever. Frau Bruckner? No, the headmistress of the school. What the hell is Frau Bruckner's title then? Frau Bruckner is a chaperone, I think. That was another, those are other, these are, other questions that I, I didn't necessarily understand. Like I knew she worked for the school. I thought Frau Bruckner right. was the head. I, no, I guess she, there is that other lady. I, right. I don't know. That and was she, confusing. She's just like this like ice queen where she's just immediately a bitch <laughs> to the student. Yeah. 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 She, and she's not even in it. You think you, for the introduction that you get, you feel like she's going to be a major component of the movie, and she's like not at all. Well, she is in the sense that you know later throughout the movie, she eventually, you know, she's the reason why Jennifer gets the EEG test for no reason. She gets a brain scan just for being a sleepwalker. Yeah, and and then but later, she, in, but once she escapes the school, I mean, she's a non-entity, right? 
I mean, she does. Does she show she, up again? She, no, she doesn't. But that's the thing. She 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 is the catalyzing agent, basically for for every shitty thing that happens to Jennifer that you know pushes her further and further, you know, out outside of you know the school. So she gets the test for basically like something that is fairly innocent. She she you know she leaves the the boarding school. Uh, for sleepwalking from sleepwalking and the headmistress is like, well, no student ever has left at night, which is, you know, obviously a lie because, you know, it's teenage girls. Of course, they're probably leaving all the time doing whatever they want, but she uses that as justification to put Jennifer, you know, to get Jennifer to have this procedure done to her. And, and then further down, uh, into the movie, she also <clears throat> um, accuses Jennifer basically of being the murderer and calls her like the lady of the flies or whatever. And because she can control the flies. So she further ostracizes Jennifer that way. Um, so, I mean, she's not there a lot, but she's there enough that like she's like this kind of, she's this moving agent to create this, you know, um, this you know, issue with Jennifer being further and further alienated by, by the, by the school and by her, her students, by her peers. So anyways, she's awful and it's just unnecessary she's fits in this, this uh, pantheon of characters that I feel like we've accumulated where there's somebody in the movie that's just like unnecessarily an asshole. Like, well, it's funny you said that, but earlier I had in my notes and didn't say anything. But I said Frau Bruckner is giving me major Travers vibes. So, right, I just I just didn't say it. Not the said mitch mistress, but Frau Bruckner at the end is giving me uh, major Travers vibes. Well, well, and so that's the thing. When you get to the end of the movie, yes, then it's Frau Bruckner where she's just like she is being you know unnecessarily aggressive, but she has a motivation where she's just trying to make she's just trying to make it so Jennifer, you know, takes the pill and, you know, she's able to use her, you know, for whatever reason she needs her at that point to just get rid of her, you know, to dispose of her basically. Um, so, Oh yeah. Another questionable, the, the bros in the car that pick up Jennifer <laughs> while she's sleepwalking. <laughs> yeah. That, that whole, they, <laughs> I don't know if anyone in the history of uh, cinematic uh, research has ever made a comparison, but this is another cliffhanger comparison. They're basically the, just the extreme snowboarding bros. They are the extreme snowboarding bros. But my question is they pick her up under the pretense that they're going to help her. And she's still, you know, she's still in sleepwalking mode, essentially. So she has no idea what's going on. So she's just trying to escape. and she is thrown out of the car and falls down that uh, she falls down that in, into that ditch. And then they just leave her there. They don't bother to try and like help her any further at that point. It's like, it's, it's almost like when they, when they pick her up, you think that she's, you know, they're, they're trying to do something bad to her. Um, and then, you know, they don't have that opportunity. So they just kind of leave her to her own devices there in the forest. <laughs> yeah, nothing materializes with that scene. That's true. They you he used Argento used that as a catalyst to get her from point A to point B, but it was meaningless. Right, exactly. Um Oh, <laughs> another question I had was um 
when Inga just finds the straight razor in the trash and it's like a brand new straight razor. Is that uh, where, where are they at when that happens? That's a, that's at the, the very, very end. That's towards the very end. And this is after, um, um, she, you know, she basically she's left on her own because the doctor's killed. And so she goes off and she's just kind of rooting around in this trash to find food or whatever. And then she finds what is essentially a brand new shaving straight razor in the trash. <laughs> yeah. And you don't dis- it, you dispose of obviously disposable razors. You wouldn't just throw a straight razor in the trash, right? It's like a it's really like nice ass shit. It's a really nice brand new straight razor. And someone yeah, good just for, good for Inga. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's like, like you were saying with the whole thing with setting up someone, you know, to, you know, move, move the story forward. But there's like this kind of, there's this device in the plot that's, that's put there. It's just like, well, that didn't make any sense. You know, like why, why did the, why did that have to happen right there? You know? Yeah. I hear so, you. Um, Oh, uh, another question I had was in Frau Bruckner's house when uh, Jennifer's there and she's, she's being held captive. She has that extremely like high, high power, high security system in her house where she has uh, those metal barricades that drop in the windows. <laughs> yeah. It's, it turns into uh, uh wh- what do you call that? When you have like a, a safe room in your house or whatever. <laughs> right. It's just like, you know, there's all kinds of questions with, you know, like why it's almost like it's an HH home sort of scenario where, she had this house made or built specifically to ensnare victims and to keep them there. You know, but it's very H.H. H. Holmesy murder house vibes. <laughs> yeah, very strange. I had. Um, is Jennifer a fucking moron? She really thinks that doll is a real boy. Also, what is the point of that doll uh, in the house? Well, um, and I, I'll interject because I actually had that too. Um, what I would say is I don't have an answer for it, but that is another Argento trope is the use of a creepy doll <laughs> somewhere sure. in the story. I, I could see. Okay. So use it fine. Why does she think it's a, re- <laughs> it's clearly not a real boy. Like right. she's like completely fooled by it. Like it, it's, it, it's crazy. It's, it's so not real. Right. Um <laughs> And then the only other question I had was uh, that we haven't touched upon was why is Jennifer even taking the medication? She's locked in the bathroom. She has just just, you flush it down the toilet. You put it down the sink. You throw it. There's so many things you could do, but with the medication other than take it, like, why is she taking it? That seems very ill-advised. Right. Obviously she she induces vomiting. Right. uh, But she could have just avoided all that by not taking the medication to begin with. Right. And my question was, uh, I had with that medication is what kind of pill prepackaged pill it's for Bruckner getting that is essentially a death pill. <laughs> like it looks like it was, is it's it like, a death pill or was it supposed to be like a sedative or a sedative or whatever? Yeah. But well, that's ma- the other question is what is the medication for? What is the intent? Are they just, if it's simply to just kill Jennifer, then right. I, I don't, I don't understand. Well, but that's the thing. It can't, you know, it can't be a sedative because it, it immediately like she has 
a reaction to it, a negative reaction to it, where she's having like a, a stomach cramp. That's true. So, so, you know, that's what I was saying is like, what is this thing? Cause it looks like it's just something she got from over the counter. Cause it's just in one of those like plastic metal, you know, maybe in Europe they have like cyanide capsules over the counter. That's what I'm wondering. Like, yeah, They're more progressive in terms of uh, <laughs> suicide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, oh, you want to? If you're gonna do it, I mean, gee, Jesus, don't do like the car in the garage and right. carbon monoxide poisoning or hanging yourself. Just get the over the counter cyanide. Get get the yeah, <laughs> get get the death pill that they that they sell at the at the local <laughs> the local druggist. The Valgreens. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh yeah, another questionable I had that I just looked down on. It's, there is very brief, but still there. Uh, questionable teenage nudity. <laughs> Where? Uh, Let me rewind. <laughs> <laughs> there is a scene where um, Sophie, Jennifer's roommate, is uh, she's changing clothes, and you can you can briefly see um, uh, a young side boob. Ooh, some side boob. Okay. Some side boob from actresses that are clearly um, underage. Yeah, this is a this is a category that's not going to make the cut. Underage nudity. Did we spot any underage nudity, Adam? <laughs> I don't well, want to. I don't want to add that. Well, I did in this movie, um, and I know um, I can't think off the top of my head, but there'll be other movies that we do talk about where there is um, underage nudity. Well, I just, I just shrug and say it's Europe mm. <laughs> again. They're more progressive there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So some of the quotes with this one, they weren't necessarily because they were good, but they were just like this is an instance of maybe some loss in the translation or some sort. You know, there was some sort of uh, you know I- issues with you know being able to make this sound serious in the script, but it ended up not sounding serious um yeah and those were a couple of them were from the headmistress in particular oh this is the one that i was thinking of where she says or do you take something like do you understand drugs yeah (laughs) to backtrack a little bit (laughs) this movie is like impossible to quote Right. Because it's just bad. It's just like bad translations of of what he possibly meant to say was just translated incorrectly. It's straight. It's a I didn't write down anything for quotes. So give me your best quotes because I got nothing. Well, as far as actually legitimately good quotes, one thing that I did have and I didn't write the whole thing down was um, say the drug one again. So. It's from the headmistress where she's basically trying to accuse Jennifer of being high, essentially, where she says, or do you take something like, do you understand drugs? Classic. Yeah, that's classic. Just (laughs) classic European person trying to talk to an American. (laughs) Not just do you understand? They should have been how you say. It should say how you say. How you say drugs? How you say drugs? Um, But. As far as good quotes go, there's the whole monologue that um, Dr. McGregor, Donald Pleasant's character, has when he's talking to Jennifer about the the sarcophagus fly, um, where it basically starts off the destroyer, the flesh eater. And that whole monologue, I think, is really cool, where he's just kind of describing the purpose of the fly and 
and you know and how it can that, be. that's tight dialogue but it's not like a quotable movie would you it's agree not, it's not it's not a quotable movie like i said in terms of like these are cool quotes like i said the only quotes that i could find where i wanted to talk about were the ones <laughs> where it's just it's just kind of an ESL sort of, you know, bad, tra- bad translations scenario. I do. But I will agree that Pleasance, the because I, I obviously was talking about how much I love that sarcophagus fly uh, scene. But the setup of it is is crucial to understanding the rest of that scene. And, and Pleasance sells that beautifully. I, lo- I love the description of the sarcophagus fly that that is a a a great uh, morbid monologue right well i did have another one and i kind of already mentioned this i think previous but when jennifer does summon her army of flies during that that whole scene in in the school where she's being taunted by her peers and one of the, the other students or the headmistress, one or the other, they say, look at her, the lady of the flies. <laughs> that, that's a good one. Yeah, that one's not bad. Yeah, I mean, that's really it. Yeah, this was not a very quotable movie. Yeah, it's not the not the best quotable movie when our winner is look at her, the lady of the flies, which I would say that that's the winner Um because it, it's uh, it's concise. It describes the it describes the movie, and it's a tight line. Right. So yeah. So that's quotes. What are we uh, moving on to next? Uh, well, our awards categories. Um, starting off with uh, the Dick Miller Award. Yeah, I came up pretty short on these. The only thing I could think of with Dick Miller was. Uh, I nominated Daria Nicolodi, which is Argento's wife, was Argento's wife. Who's Argento's wife in this? That's Frau Bruckner. Frau Bruckner is his wife? Uh, At the the time of that movie, I don't believe they were together, but yes. That's what I was going to ask. If if they were, if this is like his long, like longstanding wife that they're married still to this day, or if it was like at the time. No, they, they've, they've since divorced. Um, I want to say that that's Asia Argento's mother. Oh, is it? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, mean, that's a, that's a good dick. I mean, so for uh, those that aren't um privy this category is to spot uh a performer in the movie who is um as the as the awards is named after is someone that's that guy that you recognize and um maybe they have a, a lengthy filmography but they're not in very many movies for very long um I I didn't overthink it. I just went with Donald Pleasance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's other than the Halloween franchise, he's in a Bond movie. He's in You Only Live Twice. Right. Um he's in uh one of my favorite World War II movies, uh, The Great Escape. Um and he's in uh, uh George Lucas's first movie, THX uh, 1138. Oh, I did um, not know that actually. I've never yeah. seen that movie. I've not seen it either, but I I remember the Bond movie. I I know the, the Great Escape. I I love, and um, obviously the Halloween movie. So then I went to his filmography to see what else what else he was in, and then I saw THX eleven thirty eight, and I've, I'm familiar with it, obviously. So I threw that on the list. But I thought he would that would 
that's enough for a Dick Miller award. Yeah, fair enough. I, I suppose I was just trying to look for more of a deep cut sort of person in the movie, but the problem yeah. is, is that I just don't recognize anybody else. And Jennifer Connelly uh, became more famous, but Donald Pleasance kind of carved out these niche roles as, as um, kind of bit characters, or, you know, performance characters. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So I have no problem with that at all. I feel like that is definitely a fitting, fitting uh, nominee for that category. I just picked her because I knew she had been in, she, she's in uh, other Argento movies. Um, some of the other ones, she's had more of a prominent role than she does in this one. Well, that's fitting as well then. I mean, that, that fits the category. Yeah. And also um, another one of Argento's daughter is in this movie and that's a uh, Fiora Argento. She plays um, Vera, the, the first victim oh. in the movie. Okay. So nice. But yeah, so there you go. So there um there's our our dicks. Um I know with the last episode we had changed this upcoming category to um um who would we swap out in this movie with Bill Paxton. <laughs> it's no longer well, Harry Dean Stanton, but now Bill Paxton. Doing two foreign movies in a row has really fucked us, but um, it, this one was much harder than even Ichi the Killer. I it, it, I struggled mightily. What did, did you come up with anything? I came up with something, but I'm not. I don't even like it. I I didn't put anything down, uh, but I will say, as far as fitting with the the nature of now the the dynamic change in this category. I feel like there is one character in particular that works best with this. I, I want to say the, I will say that there's been a shift in how we should approach this from previously, you know, talking about it because Harry Dean Stanton, as we've said in other episodes, when he played, played roles, he never really played villainous roles. He usually played some quirky sidekick type of role. If he ever did have any sort of like more leading man role, again, it was more of this um, quirky, surly type of individual, but he never played to the best of my knowledge, anybody that was menacing. Uh, Whereas if we're going to talk about this in the context of Bill Paxton, Bill Paxton played a lot of roles where he played an unhinged motherfucker, you know, a, a violent, unhinged, menacing individual, along yeah. with some of the more quirky, offbeat sort of characters that he played. Yeah, he has a more, he has a little bit more, he has a lot of bit more depth, I would say. Sure, sure, absolutely. So, with that being said, I could visualize in some weird universe and some weird dream logic sort of world. <laughs> where we're talking about this sort of thing that he could play Frau Bruckner <laughs> <laughs> in like a, a Norman Bates uh, swapping out uh, Jane dressing his mother kind of way either that or just, or, or just Frau Bruckner as a man <laughs> just Frau Bruckner as a man either way okay. but but I do I see this is why I like talking about this thing these sort of things in this in this way is because thinking about him playing a Norman Bates sort of character in this movie (laughs) (laughs) where the big reveal is, you know, he is, you know, 
two, two different distinct uh, personalities in one is something to think about you as never, well. You never see Frau Bruckner outside of being from behind or silhouetted or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but also Bill Paxton plays a character in the movie that you do see routinely. And mm-hmm. so at the end, the culmination is that Bill Paxton has been playing both these characters and he is a Frau Bruckner. Uh, Frau Bruckner. Frau and, Bruckner. and it has been committing these murders all along. Um, well, and I yeah. will say, I will say this. I feel like if that sort of element was added, it, it could add a little bit more depth and maybe a little bit more, give a little bit more consistency to this plot. Because there was one thing that I did forget to mention in the questionable, we could talk about it now is we don't really know what Frau Bruckner's motivation is to killing these girls. Like it's never really fully established. She has, she, she was, she was assaulted. She was sexually assaulted and raped by, um, someone who was criminally insane. And through that, she bore this child that has this horrible mutation that has this deformity. And then we're led to believe that this has caused her to go insane to the point where, well, because it's, it's, it's also like, it's, it's, it's a, a murder duo here because the, the, the child and the mother are both doing the killing. That's what we're, that's what we're led to believe. They're both killing the girls but we don't really know why they're killing the girls other than like, it's completely senseless. They're just psychotic. Right. Yeah. Which is why, um, having Bill Paxton be Frau Bruckner only muddies those waters. Cause then you get rid of the child altogether. I would imagine. I mean, that wouldn't make a ton of sense. Um, have to have the child in there at all, but yeah, I was actually under the assumption that the child was, uh, uh, from from the top i thought the child was doing the murders it's it's until you said uh frau bruckner is obviously revealed as the killer because argento has this theme of of females being the reveal of the killers until you said that honestly i was like oh well you know what that does make sense but up to this i i was of the opinion that the child was doing these killings well but then there's the part where you see the killer enter the home of McGregor and kill him on, you know, on his, uh, his, uh, stair, his staircase. Yeah. It's not a child silhouetted at the bottom it's not of a the child. stairs. Maybe. I mean, at that point, possibly Frau Bruckner. Yeah. Like you said, they are teaming up to do these murders, but it is not, it's not clear. As it's not clear exactly why what's going on. No, but I guess the, the logic I'm trying to tease out here with, having just Bill Paxton as this tortured, (laughs) this tortured individual who has a split personality is that. (laughs) Follow me on this. Okay. It could be almost like a sleepaway camp sort of situation. (laughs) Oh God. Where when the Bill Paxton character was a child, they were dressed up as, as a female and they went to the boarding school and they were tormented or there was some sort of like trauma or torment 
because they were forced to basically dress as a, as, as a girl. And when they grew up, they decided that they no longer need to do that. And they, you know, they then decided that in their day-to-day life, they were going to be a man. And so now they have this split personality where they're the tortured young girl and they're the man. So now they have to somehow enact revenge on the students at the boarding school. <laughs> do I buy, do I buy that Bill Paxton could pull, pull that off? Yes. Undoubtedly. <laughs> Does that make this movie incredibly convoluted? Probably. <laughs> Sure, but that's what I'm saying, though. Then you actually have a clear motivation for the, for the killer. More, you have more of a, yeah, you have more of an explanation than you do. But you also add to this runtime because you have to add a lot of exposition to that. Um, but, but do but do you, though? But that's what I'm saying. Do you, though? There's more so a, than you would because she just says she is able to get away with just saying verbally just off the cuff that she was like violently uh, sexually assaulted. And, and that's the trauma. This other angle, you would have to go into a lot more than just one flipping mark. I disagree. I disagree. Think about how they set this up in sleepaway camp. You know, there's the <laughs> through series of flashbacks that take up a, not a majority of the movie that take up they, it takes up celluloid on the film. Like you, <laughs> you see, you see, I mean, you, you get these flashbacks that you're wondering the entire movie, what the fuck is going on here where the ant is sending them off to the camp and all that. It, it is inter- integral to the ending, obviously. I mean, the flashbacks are part of it. Sure. <laughs> off the Paxton rails. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really trying to make this work. I'm trying to make this work to make more sense of, of the actual script. <laughs> and here I am having put Detective Geiger. <laughs> Detective Geiger was uh, was going to be your Bill Paxton. That's that's all I put. It was just Detective Geiger, and I was not happy about it because yeah, because he doesn't do shit in the movie. He's he there very, anything. He's there very briefly. But I could see it being like a Streets of Fire thing, where he's like the quirky bartender briefly, and then you don't see him again. He could be like the. The wacky detective trying to figure this out. He does get like some meat when he's, you know, getting killed or whatever. Well, and uh, and that he gets killed off camera. But. Yeah, he does get killed off camera. You don't really see him get killed. Anyways, so that's what I'm saying is maybe there is a way to establish that sort of character to give more sense to the story. Because as the story sets right now, there's really no motivation for the murders other than the fact that this is a woman that is associated with the boarding school and she is just a senseless murderer. That's, that's, that's working with her mutant son to kill off little girls. I mean, yeah, I like your answer better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. So there we go. Okay. uh, Well, (laughs) we, uh, I would say we definitely, (laughs) We definitely have a directorial trifecta here, wouldn't you say? I mean, we're talking about fucking Dari Argento here. Yeah. Uh, w- w- um, I'm going to just say that mine was very easy. What, what did you come up with? Well, for me, it would be Deep Red, Suspiria, and Inferno. Boom, baby. We got the same trifecta. Ding, 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 ding. We've ding, never ding. had the same trifecta. This is a first. Never, ever? F- never, 
ever because you you like is not calling you out but you think you just take this category and you want to like think so far outside the box on it uh that to where it, it we never match up that i like your answers but we just it, it, we could never match up because uh, we're never both like just totally out of the box yeah but i feel like i have to because from what i know the the criteria that you have established is that it's a back to back to back movie run that's put out it's, by a director. It's simply their the director of the mo- of of whatever movie we're covering their best three movies in a row. Yes. 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 So but th- no, this is the first time we've ever had a, an agreement. Okay. I just feel like sometimes I have to kind of be a little bit more roundabout with it because I don't always see a back to back to back um, <clears throat> oh, I hear you. And I have you know. no problem with, with what you've come up with so far. I think it's, it's just the reason why we never have the same thing, which yeah. is, I think good because when we come up with the same thing, it's like, okay, let's move on. We both came up with the same fucking thing. Well, there we, go. We, we have no debate because I mean, deep red has some of his best kills. Some of my favorite kills are in deep red. Yes. Suspiria is Suspiria. We're not even going to talk about it. And Inferno is, I don't, think many people know also part of the three mothers trilogy um that is uh suspiria inferno and mother of tears right so um I, we we don't really have much to talk about because yeah i agree wholeheartedly fantastic all right well hey so we're getting something out of this that's good um so that brings us to our uh, wiki wormhole trivia category and there are some pretty choice ones with this, as I felt there would be. There'd be some some good ones to talk I about. I have our body count, by the way, if you want me to lead Thank off you. with that. You know, that's the thing. I always forget about that. So, And I meant to with this, and I forgot. I, I, I forgot to remember. So please, lead it off with our body count. Seven. <laughs> seven. <laughs> there you go. It's just seven. I'm not going to go into, because I don't even remember half the girls' names, but it's seven. So there you go. Yeah. And... If we really wanted to get weird and nerdy about it, we could also try and count how many bodies are floating in that that the uh, the death chamber <laughs> and the death pool. Because there's would, like there seems to be itchy is what I was gonna say. It would right. exceed the itchy body count at twenty five. There is there is numerous floating uh floating uh dismembered appendages and parts of, of corpses in that. So yeah, I, I didn't count any of the, uh, any of the, <laughs> the vat of dead people. No, I just right. counted on screen kills. Yes, on screen kills seven. Great. Okay. Well, first and foremost, what, and I knew, I, I knew about this for a while. Um, and this goes back to talking about the questionability of using a chimpanzee as an integral character, a live, chimpanzee uh as an integral character in a movie and that's because well they are wild animals and you have them working with people so um anything could basically happen and in fact that did happen with this movie where um tanga tanga is the real name of inga by the way why not just call her tanga who gives this why change it to inga because she's a star as well so i mean you know you got to give her like a you know some character roles they didn't even change jennifer's name they didn't they didn't 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, they, they gave they gave more thought to the chimps character than they did to Jennifer. Because they knew that if they called Tanga Inga, she would still respond. But if they called Jennifer any other name, they would lose her. Go ahead. Yes, very good. Um, <laughs> I told be- myself I would not shit on her the whole podcast, and that this is what it's become. I'm sorry. That's right. I, I appreciate you again <laughs> punching down on Jennifer in this because, you know, I, I just I became smitten with her in this role uh, early on. So. I feel worse now. I'm sorry. <laughs> Remember, like I said, I I do have a tattoo of her on my arm because of this. Fuck. No, I'm just like, <laughs> it's all right. Damn it. It's all right. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I mean, I, I love you. Thank you. And and <laughs> by by that, you love her in this role because she's on me. And no. by that by that logic, <laughs> we have to follow it to follow it to its end. Um what I was gonna say was um so Tanga the chimp ended up uh, biting off a, a piece of Jennifer Connelly's finger during the filming Holy of that shit. last scene. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So where do you draw the line? I don't want to get into an animal rights debate. Sure. Sure. Where, what do you, where do you stand on using animals in movies? Like the more uh, intelligent they are, the less, the less we should use them. Like, Obviously, dogs have been used in movies forever. The more dangerous they are, the more the less we should use them. Are, are where are you standing on this? You know, because if they're not being harmed, I don't see right. any any problem with animals being in movies. Obviously, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily. I don't know. I don't necessarily have a problem with the use of the chimp in the movie. I just know that. Um, because they are wild animals, you know, um, they're not, they're not, they're not domesticated to the degree that a dog is obviously, you know, dog, no, yeah. dogs have been raised, you know, in companionship with humans for millennia, whereas chimpanzees have not, you know, chimpanzees are still wild creatures. So in that regards, you know, <clears throat> you're going to deal with a, a, a certain, uh, higher level of hazard um, by making them serve some sort of integral role in a movie like this, where they're actually like on screen enough and have to interact with actors and actresses um, where they're put under a certain degree of pressure, much the same as anybody else in the movie. So um, like with this instance, like, you know, you just don't know what could happen. They could snap. And that's what happened with the instance of this movie is apparently Tango was fine throughout the, the movie and she was not responding to um, direction and Argento, I believe asked Jennifer Connelly to, to position Tanga in a manner that, that fit the direction of the movie and she got pissed off. And she, Why would you not have the handler do that? I don't. It's, that's what I mean. So there you go. So it's just like you—you you really, if you're going to use this animal, you need to really be uh, very cautious and have, you know, people in in you know professional roles around it at all times. And 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 this is where they didn't do that. And 
it resulted in somebody getting hurt. So that's a great fun fact. I did not know that. That that's yes. terrifying. And so Jennifer Connelly, you know, she was rushed to the hospital and she had to have her finger sewn back on. Jesus her, Christ. Or her finger sewn back on or whatever. Um but it was during the end of the it was a, the, the final scene, so they were almost over, so whatever. Was this film shot chronologically? Because that's typically uh, strange, right? Yeah. No, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, the uh, primary inspiration for this movie um, using insects um, as a key device was inspired uh, by Argento discovering that insects are used during murder investigations. That That's actually a thing that that uh detectives will do i do know that they use uh that that's that's awesome i i i didn't make the connection but i do know that they use larva gestation periods um they know that if you know they find certain maggots at a certain level of maturity it means that the the body was dumped on site you know, a certain right. amount of days ago. That, right. Yeah, and that, I did like they that. did in this movie. That's right. how they, yeah, yeah. That's exactly. how, that's how they discover the, you know, the time of the murder of, of the decapitated, uh, student was, I love that know. shit. That, that shit's so cool. Yeah, totally. Uh, a sequel was going <laughs> to go into production in 2001, but was halted due to contractual obligations. <laughs> Do you so know we anything about the sequel? This is very exciting. I don't know anything about it at all. Damn. Title, nothing? Nothing. Got nothing. Probably because nothing actually came to fruition, I would imagine. Nothing happened. Mm, yes. That's so, yeah, apparently... <laughs> of all the movies that could have a sequel, this is not one of them. This seems very... Uh, it's not... It, the The plot is is too... Not, not, the plot isn't convoluted, but they don't make up their minds as to what exactly is the motivation and exactly what is going on here to warrant a sequel. Well, I could see a sequel in the sense that pitch your sequel to me. Okay. So, you know, Jennifer throughout this movie has clearly, she has fully discovered that she has this power. She has this supernatural ability essentially to control insects so you could posit that she uses that in the future for good or for ill, depending on, you know, which, you know, end of this traumatic experience she comes out of, you know, whether she views it as something that's going to uh, neg- negatively, you know, affect her interaction with the world or whether she's going to walk away from it as being a positive that she can use her, her abilities to help the world. So, and obviously in the context of an Argento movie, who knows, you know, maybe she could turn into what would be the villain and somebody else is in pursuit of, of her, or maybe there's another villain, like she, there's another killer that she needs to discover, you know, or help out, you know, you know, finding, well, that's a good point because the what you were saying about Argento's version of a of a sequel, the Three Mothers trilogy, has like those movies are connected through this idea of a coven of ancient witches, right? Uh, but they aren't connected through any sort of other 
Um, there's, there's not a connection of characters that are in, you know, that, that overlap in the movies or anything like that. His, his idea of a sequel is more, th- um, thematic and by thematic i mean you know in in theme than they are like a jurassic park fucking two (laughs) right so yeah yeah, i get it yeah that you could uh, it could not have jennifer Connolly in it at all too phenomena could just be a sequel about other um you know phenomena that happens with maybe somebody else uh, some sort of psycho uh you know the psycho thematic kind of um similar kind of theme right so i could see it happening but just whatever but it didn't so it doesn't matter and it probably wouldn't have been that good anyways so we're better off uh the swarm of insect effect that you see on the school and also in the very end where you see it uh the insects um pouring over the moon and over uh, eventually over the uh, Frau Bruckner's son that was created. And this is why I love practical effects. Cause you know, it's like you get to nerd out about how the, the, the processes went into it as opposed to like how it was just made in a fucking computer. Um, but the swarm of insect effect was created by dumping coffee grounds in a water tank, filming it, and then superimposing that footage on the background shots. Whoa. That is truly fucking awesome. Wow. I did not know that. And you would not, you would not figure that scene is, is, is great. It doesn't look shitty at all. You would not think it was a superimposed shot of something that has nothing even remotely to do with, with flies. Right. Cause there are some scenes where you could definitely tell, you know, that that's not a real insect in that effect. And it's just somebody like painted on like a blob on, yeah, yeah, on yeah. the film or whatever like that. So, but in that sense, yeah, it looks very realistic that, that, that scene where the, where the flies just cover the, uh, the entrance to the, to the boarding school is, is really pretty epic and pretty terrifying. It's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it is. That's, and that makes it even cooler. Uh, this actually, this was a really cool, little bit of trivia that I found out and I looked into this further um, parts of the movie were used as inspiration for a, a PlayStation video game called uh, clock tower. And I looked <laughs> up this video game and it looks fucking really sick. Whoa. I'd never even heard of that, nor did I know that that's awesome. Yeah. So there's a character in clock tower named Jennifer and she's basically being pursued by a murderous child in this home. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. And it looks super cool. Um, so I'm, I actually like, I want to try and hunt it down and see if I can find, find it somewhere. Cause we have, we have a newer PlayStation and you know, apparently you can find old games like that and, and maybe purchase them. That so, would be awesome. Yeah. I might try to track it down myself. Yeah. Um, the, the condition that Brucker's son has is actual, that's a real uh, syndrome. It's called the Patau syndrome. And that's an actual chromosomal ab- abnormality that somebody can suffer from. Oh, weird. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even, I don't think I caught in the movie what he was suffering from. Yeah. Well, they don't really say other than, you know, it's, you know, it appears to be a child that was deformed through, you know, whoever uh the child's father was you know suffered from the same sort of condition um 
which is crazy to think because that child is so freakish and creepy looking that that that's like a condition that <laughs> could actually, you know, be manifested in real life. With apparently in 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 the credits, it doesn't say it on IMDb or anything, but apparently Argento credits the child as being called Patau. P-A-T-A-U. Wow. So interesting. But otherwise in the credits, it's just Bruckner's son. Right, right. (laughs) But he has a name. And Argento just named him after the condition that he suffered from. And I also think, and I don't, I don't think people, uh, people with disability, not to go on like a fucking PC rant here, but I don't think people with disabilities get the same stigmatization as like uh, the LGBTQ community, um, specifically like how um, uh, in Silence of the Lambs, um, you know, the the kind of the negative, uh, uh, the negative outlook of a of uh, a trans person equating to an evil person or a bad person and this kind of thing with people with disabilities in movies like deformities are always used as like freak show kids evil it's always denotes evil it's never right. like oh they happen to have a disability and they are good <laughs> but i guess you do have donald pleasance in a wheelchair but that doesn't i'm not sure that really really counts as as much well when it's like a situation like this where the person suffering from this condition is you know they're they're difficult to look at they're not easy on the eyes no no that that is when it's used as (laughs) as you know but it's that aspect of something the unknown is is scary to us so like a trans person like in the in the form of buffalo bill in the early 90s that is that in terms of society was not very prevalent so that kind of unknown aspect is right is can be can be fearful um right. and the same with you know deformities so right. uh, whatever so what we can say is in a in a more progressive environment in society that bruckner's child would have been embraced and 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 would have been um would have been um not viewed disdainfully and therefore would not have turned into a cold-blooded murderer true but then yeah. when you accept him, Jennifer Connelly like hugs him, then he stabs her. So. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it is that time. We're going to assign a rating to this movie. So, oh yeah. Um, what do you think, Pat? What are we starting with? The midnight rating or the overall ranking? Well, we gotta uh, we gotta first establish the icon that we use for the rating. So for this one, what could we use? There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of symbolism in this movie that could be used as iconography. So I would go. I, I this is just my opinion. I would just do chimps. <laughs> you just want to do chimps. I know it's not like super creative, but I really love Inga in this movie. Um, but I will also, uh, you know, hear you out well, and default to you. I like chimps. We could use flies. We could use straight razors. We could use wheelchairs, but that's already been done. No, let's do sarcophagus flies. I like that better. Okay. <laughs> so 
there, there we go. Out of because you know the sarcophagus fly is a pretty integral device in this in this yes. movie. So, um, out of five sarcophagus flies, what would you give this? I give this three out of five sarcophagus flies. Yes. Um, and I would give this a midnight rating in terms of whether or not we think this is a midnight movie. It is a midnight movie. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's 12 a.m. on the dot. So because, again, going into this, I was biased. I got to give this a little bit higher rating just because of my love for this movie. So I'm going to give it a four out of five. Okay. Um, again, I will say after watching it this time, after kind of dissecting it more critically than I had in the past that, you know, I see more and more of the, the problems that other people see with this movie. So I'm not in any way discounting that this movie has a lot of issues, has a lot of flaws, but sometimes it's like streets of fire where you're just like, I don't really give a fuck. This yeah. movie puts me in a happy place exactly. where, where I watch it and it just makes me happy. And it's something that I like. And you can't, there, you can't equate for, for that. Like that, right. that is what it is. It, yes. If it's a movie, that's a safety blanket for you or something that you just can't touch upon, uh, you know, quantifiably right. why you like it is just something you like. And it makes you, it gives you a vibe of something that is, uh, you know, intrinsic to shit that you like, then so, so be it. There you go. Thank you for justifying my love for this movie. You no, just- I have no issue with, it's not like it's a, it's a fucking <laughs> awful movie. I just think it's middle of the road Argento just above middle of the road. There you go. So yes, I give it a four out of five. And yes, I also assign it a midnight movie. There's just Perfect. enough kookiness, uh, weirdness and violence where you know, it, it doesn't quite go over the threshold. Like we were saying with Ichi, you know, where it's just like, I'm not sure could air at any hour of the day. Yes. Even (laughs) though there, even though there is teenage side boob in this and that's taboo, there is no, uh, jizz, actual human jizz used (laughs) as a prop. So no, no, there's not. So yeah. So there we go. Um, well, so this is my movie. I picked this for this time. What, Pat, you're picking for the next time. What are we watching on the next episode? All right. We're getting out of foreign waters here. We're, we're back on back. A, back <laughs> onto American shores. Good old America, USA. We've landed. I'm kissing the fucking ground um, and looking around at the hellscape that is our coronavirus epidemic and wishing I didn't kiss the ground. And we are watching <laughs> 1988's uh, Maniac Cop, our second Tom Atkins movie. Boom. Right there. I was, yeah. And, and our, our second Tom Atkins movie, our first Bruce Campbell movie. Ooh, so very exciting. Very exciting. Also, in New York, like you said, I, or did you say that? Sorry. Or did I just I did say not, that? I did not say that, but your accent um, implied uh, if, if, if people didn't recognize <laughs> was, was a New York accent. Yes. And it's also, I did that also because I've been watching the Sopranos lately. So, Oh, okay. Okay. It's, it's just that, you know, that East coast day. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, in these dark Corona times in New York, where incidentally, you know, they're having what seems to be the, the the most issues with this uh this uh this coronavirus thing going on so it's uh 
It's fitting that we're uh, we're going to land in New York right now. I didn't think about that, but yes, um, a very New York centric movie. Very New York centric, um, and it's a it is a romp. I'll tell you that. Boy, it sure is. I had I had a real fun time rewatching it, and so I'm glad that we're going to be talking about that next. So. This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music. Our outro music is brought to you by Black Queen, Seattle uh, Seattle band Black Queen this week. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod at gmail.com. That's midnightflixpod at gmail.com. Or hit us up on Instagram at Midnight Flix Pod. For Patrick Mitchell, I am your host, Adam Walker, and we'll see you next time. Later. I'm going to bite your dick tip off. Ah! <laughs> <laughs>